you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're actually going to revisit something this morning that we talked about several years back because I think it's relevant and it fits perfectly with where we are. And it's, it gets to the heart of a struggle that I've spoken with, especially among our younger men, that seems to come up quite often. Proverbs chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 6 and we'll read through verse 11. It says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I pray that today you would set our feet on the path of the mission. I pray, Father, that you would give us a vision of the glory of putting our nose to the grindstone, that you might be worshipped in our life and honored in our life, that our families might be provided for, that our churches might be cared for, that our community might be loved and reached. I pray, Father, that you would displace self-aggrandizement and self-delusion and, and self-importance with a passion for a dignified, quiet life, as Paul says, that brings glory and honor to you, even if the rest of the world doesn't get it, even if the rest of the world doesn't see it, even if it seems as though we are throwing and squandering our lives through dead-end jobs and one week after another, God, let us have a vision of indignity elevating what you have offered to us as an offering to you. And so, Father, I pray that you would bring hope to people who are going to the depot tomorrow and don't want to be there. I pray that you would bring hope to those who are going to work on an assembly line and wish they could be literally anywhere else on earth. I pray that, Father, you would bring purpose to the stay-at-home mom who wonders how the monotony of changing diapers can actually matter in the kingdom of God. I pray that, Lord, today, you would set our eyes above all of those things to a kingdom that is yet to come. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Tim Wu is a law professor at Columbia Law School. And he talks about something that he believes is characterizing our age. And I think he's on to something. He calls it... The tyranny of convenience. The tyranny of convenience. And so what he says is that we live in an age, and you can, I think, see this as it's evolved and increased over the decades, that we live in an age in which really all of our lives is, are based upon and centered upon making our, our uh, lives more enjoyable and more convenient and, more, and, and simpler. That we spend less of our time figuring out how to do the work that's at hand, and more of our time trying to figure out how to get out of that work, how to simplify that work, how to make that work simpler. 
And the result of this is, is that more than any other time in human history, we have time to do fun things. We, we have more leisure than any other time. We, we take more vacations than any other generation that has come before us. We, we have more hobbies than any other generation that has been before us. I mean, just think about it. Think about how often your grandparents went on vacation. How often did they make it down to the beach? probably once a year, twice a year, maybe on the 4th of July, they would go and visit their family in another town, right? They weren't getting high-rise condos down at PCB and hanging out for a week or two. But for many of us, not only is that what we do, it's what we live for. It's what we live for. We live for these conveniences. We live for a life of leisure. We look forward to and long for it more than we do the other 50 day, fifty weeks of the year. And it's not working. This is what Wu points out. And he's a secular, uh, a secular uh, observationist. He says that depression is higher than it's ever been. Anxiety, higher than it's ever been. Convenience, more than we've ever had. It doesn't work, does it? That there's something about us that we long to, to do less and we long to work less and we long to have more leisure. Yet at the very same time, the more of it that we have, it actually seems to bring disruption and death to our souls. And so he says that one of the things, and I want you to think about this in your life because I think it's, it's such an apt observation. That what we do with our hobbies, because there's something in our souls that is longing for more, something in our souls that is desiring something, that satisfaction, something that we can, we can do and, and with our own hands and with our own mind, is that with our hobbies, now we're actually introducing, reintroducing inconvenience into our lives. So, so we spend the whole week trying to figure out how to get out of work. We spend the whole week in developing new technologies and purchasing new technologies and looking for shortcuts and life hacks. And then on the weekend, we go and we train for a marathon, right? Or, or we figure out we're, we're, we're trying to become more efficient and more streamlined and hire this position and, and be able to, to uh, cut this corner. And yet, rather than going to the store and buying a quality table, we take up woodworking ourselves in the traditional way. Right? You, you can look at it. I love to camp. Think about that. I have a house at 509 Mary Lane that has air conditioning. It has indoor plumbing and flushable toilets. One of them is broken right now, but it usually flushes. I've got a carport to park under. I've got a chair that reclines back. I've got a TV that I can watch. And yet, what do I always want to do? I want to go live out in the woods somewhere where there's no plumbing. I have to bring in my water. I have to go to the bathroom in the trees. Isn't that ironic? Isn't that ironic? Why would that be the case? Because we were designed by God in the image of God to work. That our lives are actually more satisfying and more delightful and more enjoyable when they are filled with work for us to do. Work that can, that can be, uh, bring productivity and effectiveness in our lives. That can bring help to our families and to our communities and to our churches. And so maybe in ways that we're not even perceiving in our age, what we need is to rediscover a theology of work. 
rediscover a theology of work, to rediscover why it is that it matters, rediscover why it is that we shouldn't be living for retirement or living for vacation or living for leisure, that we should be living for the opportunity to invest the time and the energy and the resources that have been provided to us by God into the life that he has provided, that it might maximize our fruitfulness for his glory. And so you have Solomon here, and he's talking to his son still in chapter 6. And remember, he's talking to his wealthy, affluent, privileged son. A son that could be spoiled, perhaps. A son that's probably not all that different than the children that we're raising here in the Western world with all of the affluence and all of the opportunities that we're able to provide for them. And he's saying to his son, son, it's important that you don't... that you don't lose sight of how important work is. It's important that you don't lose sight of how necessary it is that you place your nose to the grindstone and that you go after it every day. And so he begins to paint a picture for his son. He uses two contrasting images to show his son the value of work and the importance of work that we might live a satisfying life. The first picture that he shows is he shows him the wisdom of the ant. He shows him the wisdom of the ant. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard. The ant. Now that's an interesting choice, isn't it? In fact, this isn't even the only place in the book of Proverbs that the ant shows up. It also shows up in Proverbs 30. That in some way, the writers of the Proverbs, the sages of Israel, they look down to the lowly, seemingly worthless and insignificant ant. And they said, there, there in that little creature is a champion of wisdom. What is there to learn from the ant? You know, God is the source of all wisdom. We've acknowledged that, right? That that all wisdom begins with God. All wisdom comes from God. All wisdom that can be learned finds its original source in God. And God is the one that made this universe. God is the one that made the creation. God is the one that put the orderliness to this earth that we live in. And that means that there, if we look and observe in the earth, that we are able to glean something of the nature of God's wisdom in the creation of that which we have made. But here, he doesn't choose the eagle, the majestic eagle flying over the, the mountain passes. He doesn't choose the lion mighty to roar and tear apart its, its victims. He chooses the ant, something that we step on. Something that we get annoyed by. And he says, you want to be wise? You want to be diligent? You want to live a productive and a satisfying life? You, oh sluggard, don't, you go to the ant and you learn what the ant has to say because the ant has a lot to teach you who find it so naturally to be lazy and slothful. And so he says that the ant self-starts and self-regulates. The ant self-starts and self-regulates. It says in verse 7, talking about the ant, without having any chief, any officer, or any ruler, the ant just does what it's supposed to do. That in other words, the ant isn't doing what it's supposed to do because it has a micromanager on the backside. The the, the ant isn't doing what it's supposed to do because it has a performance review that's lingering around the corner. The ant isn't doing what it's supposed to do so that everyone will be impressed by how how diligent and proper and well-studied the ant is. 
The ant does what it's supposed to do because the ant is regulated not by a manager, not by a supervisor, not by a performance review. It's managed and it's regulated by true reality. That the ant has an understanding of what happens in the real world and it is the true, this true reality that brings accountability into the life of the ant. In other words, the ant knows that winter is coming. The ant knows that the harvest season is but for a time. And so it must go every day, wake up early and go to bed late, get tired day in and day out if it wants to actually be able to make it when the famine comes, when the winter comes, when the harvest is over. Now, I want you to think about how that contrasts with the picture that we have so often. You know, I was a youth pastor for eight years and every year we went on a couple of different camps every year. And every year at camp, I played out the same scene. Like it just, it, it, it was like, it was the same kids that came every year just with different faces and different names. You know what I'm talking about? And so every year, inevitably, at the time of camp, we would be, and we'd be in, in Gatlinburg, you know, and they have all of that $5 junk that you can buy and all the different novelty stores. And inevitably, there would be a junior high boy, usually named Tyler, who would be hanging out with me, and he would say, Cody, I'm going to buy those window shade glasses. You know, y'all seen those? Like, they're these glasses that you can, and they're made out of plastic, and they, they look like window shades or window blinds that go down like this. I said, well, that's, that's fine. Do you have enough money to eat on on the way home? They had to have enough money to eat on a fast food meal on the way back, a fast food meal on the way home. No, all I have is, is $5, but I'm not going to be hungry. I'm not going to be hungry. Tyler, you're, you're, you're going to be hungry. I promise you're going to be hungry. I, you need to save that $5. No, 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 no. C- Cody, you don't know me. I, I'll, just, I'll eat an extra muffin that morning. We drop, I, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And every single time, they would go buy the stinking glasses, and I would have to buy their meal on the way home. Because guess what? They got hungry. In other words, teenagers, and so often us too, live in denial of true reality, don't they? They tell themselves what they want to hear today so that they can live how they want to today regardless of what will actually come tomorrow, regardless of what they will actually deal with tomorrow. But the wise, they don't do that. Wise people live in light of true reality. Wise people don't buy a pair of shoes today knowing that they have to buy car tags in a couple of weeks. Wise people don't, uh, don't sleep in when they know that they have a responsibility early that morning. Wise people don't procrastinate the project at work so that when it actually comes and the deadline looms, they become frantic and frenzied and panicked. No, wise people, they live in light of true reality. And reality regulates them. Responsibility regulates them. The the difficulties of the future days ahead, the uncertainty of what lies ahead, the responsibilities that they have there in that moment. It regulates their responsibility so that they go and do what they ought to do. You see, wise people, they don't need managers. Now, we live in a world that managers are reality and managers are often good. But do you know why managers have to exist? Managers have to exist because people don't live as wise people. No, if we live with the understanding, like the reformers use this phrase often called quorum deo. Quorum deo meant to live in the face of God. 
In other words, what, what they said was, is every day, day in, day out, what I have to wake up and realize is that that moment, that day, that instance, I am in the face of an ever-present God. I am in the face of a God who has given me the beat in my chest and the air in my lungs and the thoughts in my mind and the responsibilities of that day and living in the face of God. It does not matter what the other men think of me. It does not matter what the other people think of me. What matters is that the triune God sees me and is, takes delight in me and is glorified in me and so I live in other words responsible to the Lord do you have to be managed do you have to be managed or do you live day in day out as a wise person who knows that they give account for their time and their resources and their energy before a holy God the ant self-regulates and self-starts but the ant prepares for tomorrow too Look at verse 8. It says she prepares. Now what does prepare mean? Prepare means ahead of time. Before it comes. Before I have to. Like before it's imminent. Before tragedy strikes. Before the emergency arrives. Before the deadline is here. I'm at work. She prepares her bread in summer. And gathers her food in harvest. Now why is she doing that? Because the winter is coming. So she's preparing before the winter for the winter. She's getting ahead on her work. Day in, day out, she's doing what she ought to do. That is, that she's living today in a way that will allow her to thrive tomorrow. That's wisdom. That's what wise people do. That's what our grandparents were so great at that so many of us are struggling with. That we live today and we do without today and we work today and we expend our energy today because we know that one day we're going to need it. We know that one day other people are going to be dependent upon us. We know that we are going to need to thrive five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and we are unsure of what the future holds. And so today, today I go to work. Now I want you to think about the ant. The ant has the epitome of a dead-end job, doesn't she? I mean... Nobody is going to write an article in Time Magazine about the ant of the year. When when she retires, she's not going to receive a rocking chair and a plaque. She's not driving around in a a company BMW. Now, she's the kind of person that just gets stepped all over on her way to the ant bed. She's the kind of person that does the work that nobody else wants to do. She's the kind of person that has to to go and not be noticed and do it just because it needs to be done, just because it's her responsibility, just because that's who she has been designed to be. But you know, there's a beautiful dignity to this ant with a dead-end job, isn't there? The ant bed always has plenty. It always has plenty. She's always taken care of. The the, the queen ant always has plenty of food so that she can keep producing all of the other ants. Everything continues to work in all of the ways, the magnificent, beautiful ways in which God has designed it. That is, there's a dignity to this ant that is meant to paint a picture of what the dignity of our lives should be. That, That you and I were designed by God in the image of God to work as God works. God is a creative God. God is a, a God who has a plan. God is a God who is always, uh, always uh, active and present in his creation and holding things together and, and bringing things to pass. And Genesis 2 says that we were made in his image, that we were made like that. 
that we were made to work. We were made to be creative. We were made to have a plan. We were made to work the plan. We were made to go in day in, day out, to bring back to the nest everything that was necessary. And even that is a means by which God has provided for us. But I'm afraid that dignity is being lost today. See, I think one of the biggest lies that's being told to our generation is that they, you need to have a job that's a ton of fun. That, that you need to have a job that is enjoyable and that you need to have a job that is, that is filled with purpose in and of itself. That it is a job of prestige and a, a job of, of prominence. That it's the kind of job that's going to cause other people to be envious of your jobs. And look, I've got a job I love and I, I get that feels maybe even hypocritical. But even my job, even every job is bittersweet in reality. But you know the truth is that the dignity of work doesn't come from the work itself. The dignity of work comes from the offering that is being made up to our Heavenly Father. I, I was thinking about this. The sanctuary that we're sitting in right now, do you know how it was primarily paid for? It was primarily paid for by people who went to the depot every single day. It was primarily paid for by people who went to Honda every single day. It was primarily paid for by teachers who wondered how in the world they were going to make it through another school year. That is, this facility, which we have seen people, hundreds of people, baptized. This facility in which the gospel has been proclaimed to our community for decades now. This facility in which we have all these people coming to faith and, and being able to be discipled in the world and joining together as a church family was provided for by people who believed that they were living and working a dead-end job. But like the ant, like the ant, their life was bigger than the job they went to every day. See, the dignity of your work is not the prestige that comes along with, with the job itself. It's not the mission that you find within the work itself. It's the ability to be able to prepare and to care for your kids. It, it's the ability to be able to love and minister to your community. It's the ability to be able to support and move forward the mission of the church. I get not all of you are going to uproot your lives and go to, 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 to Africa to be missionaries and to plant churches. But what you can do is go to the depot day in, day out and work and come and offer. Make a humble offering that you living a quiet, dignified life in a seemingly dead-end job are now able to send missionaries to Africa and be a part of the spreading of the kingdom of God. There is something beautiful, powerful about a man who gets up every day to go to a job he dreads, to go to a job he wishes was different than what it is, but he goes because he has a responsibility to go. And he goes because he has a family to take care of. And he goes because he has a wife he wants to support. And he goes because he has kids that he wants to give opportunities to go for. And he goes because he has a community that he wants to reach. And he goes because he has a church that he wants to support. He goes because being made in the image of God, he's being sent out that he might be in work in dignity to advance the vision that God has given for his people. It's beautiful, isn't it? And here's, here's the reality. That learning from the ant, what we all must realize is that winter is coming to our lives. Winter is coming. It may be through a recession. It may be through corporate downsizing. It, it may be through a disability or a, a sickness. 
You may have a child that requires extraordinary amounts of care and extraordinary amounts of medical, uh, medical care. You may have uh, difficulties that arise with your ailing parents. Winter is coming to your house. And it is not faith to wait until winter gets here to see how God will provide. It is prudence and it is wisdom to work today in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, in preparation. During the time of harvest, during the summer, for when winter comes and when the hardship sets in, so that you'll be ready. So that you'll be ready. What if God calls you to adopt, but you have not been financially responsible up until the time, and it delays the adoption of that child by five years? What if God does want to send you to the mission field, but you've become so strapped with debt that you're unable to go forward, and you live languishing in a call underneath the weight of that debt? No, 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 no. Live with the wisdom of the ant. Prepare today. Live in dignity today, because God has provided for you today. You know, we see with the ant a beautiful picture, I think, of of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Who has to bring the harvest? God has to bring the harvest, doesn't he? God has to, has to bring the seed, and God has to bring the sun, and God has to bring the rain. Those are things, especially here in an agrarian society, that the ant has no control over. But what does the ant have to do? When God brings the harvest, the ant has to go and get it. The ant has to go and get it. And you know this is what an ant does. You're watching TV and they're ambushing the leftover manwich on the stove. You're, you're chilling out wanting to take a nap. And while you sleep, they're carrying off a whole box of frosted flakes, one flake at a time. It's what they do. See, God has provided for us in ways that we don't fully appreciate. That when you go to that dead-end job every day, you are in some way bringing glory to God, yes, but receiving kindness from God also. But what you need to see is not only is that dead-end job provision from God to you, it is an opportunity presented to you to worship God in response. Have you ever thought about in Genesis chapter 2, God never tells Adam and Eve how to worship. Thought about that? He never says, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have three songs, a sermon, and an invitation. Like, you know, that, that never happens. Instead, in Genesis 3, rather than telling Adam and Eve how to worship, he tells them how they're made. He tells them who they are. And part of what he tells them, and this is important, before sin comes into the world, before brokenness comes into the world, before the world is under a curse, he says that you were made, designed, engineered to work the ground. That is... That when they live according to the design of God, in the face of God, knowing that it is God to whom they are answerable, their work is a form of worship. Their work, by, by living in accordance with how we're designed, we bring worship and glory to the one who designed us. You see, every day you don't go to work and work for the man. That's what it feels like. That's what it feels like a lot. But every day, you don't go and work for the man. You go and you work, as Paul says, unto Christ. You work for the Lord. 
And if every day, day in, day out, you go to that dead-end job and you go to that dead-end job because you love your family and because you love your kids and because you love your church and because you love your neighbor and because you love your community, if that is the driving force that gets you out of bed at 4 a.m. every single Monday when that alarm clock goes off, it looks like you're getting nothing. It looks like you're going nowhere. But you, my friend, are storing up treasures in heaven. You are storing up a fortune that moth and rust will not destroy. You are storing up for yourself a, a, a position of prominence and glory in a kingdom that will not be stained and will not crumble and will last forever. Oh, your dead-end job, it is an opportunity for you to worship and to receive unstained glory. There's a contrasting picture that we see here. Picture two, the foolishness of the sluggard. The foolishness of the sluggard. So a sluggard is basically another word for a fool. A sluggard is another word for a fool in the Proverbs. And it comes up 14 times in the whole Bible. And all of them, all 14 times, find their way in the book of Proverbs. But what we see about the sluggard is that the sluggard sleeps when no one is looking. The sluggard sleeps when no one is looking. Verse 9, he says, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Some of you are going to go and wake up your kids for school tomorrow, and this is what you can say to them. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep, right? What do we see here from the sluggard? The sluggard wants to stay in bed. Now, you have to realize that these are farmers, okay? Farmers don't have time clocks. Farmers get up when they want to get up and go to bed when they want to get up. But if they have work to do, if there is a crop, if they want to eat, that is, they better get up. They better wake up while it's still dark out and they better be working until it's dark again. They better have their hand to the plow because if farmers don't work, farmers don't eat. But he says here, that the sluggard is a person who lacks drive. They, they, they lack the kind of ambition and the kind of vision for their life that will get them out of the bed. Instead, they, they pull the pillow over their head and they, they sleep another hour or two. They, they just keep pressing on and, and not worrying about the implications because tomorrow's gonna come, this afternoon will be plenty, next week will be a great time, the harvest is gonna be plenty of time. Well, there's plenty of time for the harvest. And so they pull the covers over their head and they go back to sleep knowing that what they ought to do is get to work. And, and there's, a, there's a conversation here for us because we talk a lot about the wickedness of selfish ambition. And selfish ambition is, is wicked because it displaces God as the primary means of satisfaction in your life. It displaces Christ as being the one who is truly worthy of, of your, of your uh, desire and of your hunger and of your love and of your devotion. Instead, it's how much can I make? How high can I raise my own name rather than how high can I raise the name of Christ. But if we're not careful, the pendulum can swing too far back the other way. Because it is evil, yes, to have selfish ambition, but in the Bible, it is, it is equally wicked to have no ambition at all. That we are to be people who are ambitious. That has been given to us by God. God did not have to make this world, did he? God didn't have to make it. Why did God make it? 
Because he had ambition. There, there, you see something of an ambition in God to go and to create. I've, I've heard that you know there are all of these galaxies and untold stars that are thousands and thousands of light years that are away from us. And why did God make all of these things? Just to show off how great God is. To show off how, how manifold his glories are. Just to show off how stupendous his creative power is. That is, I think we see something of the ambition of God in the galaxies, in the creation, in the intricacies of all that has been made. And so it is not virtuous for us. If we don't care what happens today, if we're not worried about having a job today or tomorrow, it's not virtuous, in other words, to be like Cousin Eddie who never works but's always holding out for a management position. No, it's virtuous. To have ambition, ambition that will care for our kids, ambition for the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God would go and would spread and would increase, ambition that, that those who are hungry would have food to eat and those who are thirsty would have water to drink. Think of Matthew 25 here. To, to, to have ambition that those who are going with the frontier of missions would be able to have the opportunity to, to have funding to go, to have those in our community that, who have needs to be counseled with, to provide for them, pastoral care, to, to do all of these things. To have the kind of ambition that wants the best for our kids' ministry, and our youth ministry. To have the kind of ambition that, that wants what, what Proverbs calls to be wisdom as to leave an inheritance to our children's children, to, to set up our families for success, not just today and not just tomorrow, but, but for the future and going forward to, to establish a trajectory. But the sluggard doesn't have that. That is, the sluggard is so self-centered that all he can think about is that five minutes of extra sleep he wants. The sluggard is so self-centered that all he can think about is what's comfortable and convenient for him in the moment. He has no ambition for what the future could be. He has no drive of where he could go. Not only does he like drive, he likes discipline. He likes discipline. He knows he ought to get up. He knows what he ought to do, but he just doesn't do it. He just doesn't do it. You know what discipline is? Discipline is ambition with a plan. Discipline is ambition with a plan, a plan that's being carried out, a plan that is being executed. Did you know that every fool on earth has dreams for their life? Every fool on earth has dreams for their life. They, they lay there in bed and they have daydreams for what they want to do and what they want to accomplish. They have these grandiose ideas of there in their elderly age of, of looking back over a life that has been well lived, that has been productive, being surrounded by family that cares for them and loves them, family that cares for Jesus and loves Jesus. They have dreams, but they don't have discipline. They had intentions, but they never had a plan. What's your plan? What's your plan? Do you want to walk with Christ in a way that is more satisfying next year than you are this year? Do you, do you want to know more of joy in Christ? Do you want to know more of the peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you want to understand more how Christ transforms every area of your life and your marriage and your parenting and your work? How, how Christ transforms all of it? What's your plan? What's your plan to get there? Intentions are good. Dreams are good. But where is your plan that is going to, in, that is going to uh, enact and enable that ambition in your life to become a reality? Do you want kids that are going to love the Lord? you want kids that are going to know the scriptures and know the gospel? you want kids who are going to know how to, how to pray? 
What's your plan? How are you going to instruct them? How are you going to train them? Do you, do you want to have the kind of marriage that, that gets better with time? The, the kind of marriage in which the, fe- the, the fellowship and the friendship with one another gets better and sweeter year in and year out. Well, it's work, man. What's the plan? That's a great dream and those are good intentions. But what is the plan? Wisdom calls for discipline. It calls for a plan. The issue isn't just a lack of drive. And the issue isn't just a lack of discipline. The issue is boils down to, really, a lack of dignity. We're circling back to dignity here. That they don't understand how they've been made and why they've been made. That they don't appreciate that they've been made in the, in the way of God to emulate God and to imitate God and that the only way that their life will be satisfying and the only way that their life will have any real purpose and significance is not if they have the job that they've always dreamed of. It's not if they have the family that they've always waited for. It's not that they have a, a job that all the other people and all the other soccer moms think is the best and the greatest. And not if they have the house that they've always wanted or driven in the car. It's if they are living on mission in the design of God, in the way of God, to the glory of God. That is, it is to realize the fullness of their dignity. But the sluggard, he lacks dignity. I talked with a young man whom I mentored many years ago, not that long ago, and he struggled not having a steady job ever since graduating from high school. And this has went on for a long time now. And every time he would go, he would get a job, and he would say, man, it's just miserable. It's just, I hate it. I hate going there every day. And, the, and the, the, the boss would disrespect me, and the people would get on me, and it was just, it was just awful. And so, so because I want to be respected, because I want to be admired, because I want to have purpose and significance, I quit. So I asked him, do you feel like you have more dignity or less right now? You don't have a job. You have to ask people for food and for money. Not because you're disabled, but because you just don't work. So I asked him, I said, do you feel like you have more dignity or less right now? See, there's a distortion, isn't there? That if I go to that dead-end job in some way, I'm compromising my dignity. But in reality, it is going to that dead-end job every day that allows you to realize and maintain some semblance of dignity, a dignity that even those outside of the church can appreciate because God has so intricately woven that into the DNA of who he has made us to be. Now go to work. Work in your church and work in your family. Work with your kids and work with your wife. Work with your co-workers work and be unto the Lord as good as you can be as one who has drive and discipline because of dignity in your life. But the sluggard sleeps when no one is looking and so the sluggard squanders his life a little at the time. Look at verse 10. A little sleep. Isn't that funny? A little sleep. That's how we would say it. We always minimize it. I just need a little more, right? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Do you have the picture there? Do you have the picture? This is the person, their alarm goes off, and it probably goes off the way Andrew's alarm goes off. So, so last week, Andrew and I shared a room to, at the conference that we were at. I have an alarm that gives me an adrenaline rush when it goes off. You know what I'm saying? Like I need to be resuscitated into real life with a, a shock to the system. Andrew sings him a nice little lullaby that increases in volume and wakes him gently from the sheets so that he can be delightfully refreshed. And that's the image here, isn't it? Like, this is the guy. He hits. 
mom comes in and says, no, 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 mom, just a little more, just five more minutes. No, 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 don't be so, don't be so harsh. Back down, it'll all be fine. And just a little bit at a time, a little bit more every minute, he's just squandering away his life. I love you so much. Yeah, that just came to me right here. That was pretty good, wasn't it? That just came, I mean, just right here on the spot. That's the spirit of God. That's what I... Um, So what we see about the sluggard is that the sluggard doesn't appreciate incremental investment. And and in fact, that is something that is common among what the Proverbs would classify as foolishness. Here, it's talking about time. In other places, it talks about money. In other places, it talks about the, uh, the... the, the way that you operate within the kingdom of God, within, among the people of God, they, they don't fully appreciate the value of one minute. They don't appreciate the value of one day or of one year. In, in other words, I, I want to save $1,000, and so today all I have is 50 and that's too small of an amount to make a difference, so I'm just going to go and, you know, well, for $50 you can go to McDonald's now, right? I'm, I'm going to go hang out for McDonald's. Or, or, you know, there's just 30 minutes left in the day, there's not much I can get done in 30 minutes. I'm just going to head on home. Or, or, you know, yeah, I want to walk with Christ. I want to delight in him. I want to have a, a deeper understanding of the word of God. But I really need that 30 more minutes of sleep. I really need that more, 30 more minutes of sleep. Or, or it's just one more show. It's just one more episode. It's just one more thing on Netflix. It's just one more night of vegging out. I, I, tomorrow will be different. Tomorrow will be better. But it's just a little folding of the hands to rest. A little more sleep, a little more slumber, a little more folding of the hands to rest. And over time, over time, you waste your life. Over time, you spend your life hitting the snooze button to wake up one day and realize you haven't accomplished anything. To realize that one snooze button at a time, you've ended up completely off course as a person that you never intended to be, accomplishing nothing of what you actually wanted to accomplish. And the dreams that you had for your life and the good ambitions that you had for your family have all went and faded away into a place and now they're not even a reality. In his book, uh, Atomic Habits, many of you have probably read it, James Clear, he makes a really interesting uh, uh, comparison with this. So, so if you've never read the book Atomic Habits, it basically means that you can bring about transformation in your life and the way most transformation is actually brought about is by not making some drastic dynamite explosion type of change in your life. It's made through 1% changes in your life. Changing, reducing your caloric intake by 1% and you lose weight. It's, it's taking advantage of, of 1% you know, getting up 1% earlier and staying up 1% later and you're able to accomplish. And so it's, it's, it's gradually increasing and bringing this incremental change into his life. And he makes a great illustration in there that I've never forgotten. He, he says that most of us, we want to go in and like with dynamite, we, want to, we have this uh, big mountain in our life that we want to move. Like, like I'm going to start waking up at 4 a.m. and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the kind of person that memorizes the book of Ezekiel this month. And we're like, like I'm going all in and we go in with this dynamite and we try to blow out these dams in our life. And what happens to those New Year's resolutions? They go away really quickly, don't they? They fade. He, he, he said a better way for us to think of it is like melting an ice cube. And slowly, one degree at a time, you start at 35 degrees and you don't see any change, and that's okay. 
You go down to 34 degrees, you still don't see change. And you go down to 33 and 32 and there's still no change. And that is usually when people give up. That's when the sluggard quits because it seems though these incremental changes are of no value. It seems that squirreling away $50 when you need $5,000 is, is hopeless and pointless. It seems getting up five minutes earlier when you need five hours more is hopeless and pointless. But he says there comes a point through these incremental changes where 32 turns into 31. And you started at 35 degrees, and it seemed pointless, and 34 pointless, and 33 pointless, and 32 pointless. But at 31, 31, that ice cube starts to melt. Or, I'm actually going the wrong way there. <laughs> but you guys know what I'm saying, all right? I'm a preacher, not a scientist. You get to 33 degrees, and something magic happens, right? It begins to melt away. And when it begins to melt away, it actually encourages you to go and to do more. And then it begins to melt faster, and it melts faster, and it melts faster. And ultimately, it's completely changed form from a solid state to a liquid state. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book on spiritual leadership, he says that mediocrity is the result of never getting tired. It's the result of never waking up early and never going to bed late. It's the result of not going deep in the study because it's too much work and it's too much of an inconvenience. It's the result of not taking on hard responsibilities and hard commitments and hard tasks because it's just too hard. He said, but you get to the end of your life and you look back over the course of your life and you realize that I just lived a mediocre life. What kind of life do you want to leave? What kind of life do you want to live? Are you going to look back over the whole of your life like the sluggard always does, filled with regret and wasted opportunity? Or are you going to look over your life and say, no, I won the battle and I offered up my deadbeat job to the Lord. And I have raised up a generation of people who love Christ, who live for Christ, who are provided for. That's the kind of vision that changes your mind. See, the sluggard, he's the most unfortunate kind of fool. Because he wastes the one commodity that God gives us that cannot be wasted. You can make more money. You can build another house. You can buy another car. But you can't get time back, can you? You can't get time back. But the sluggard, five minutes at a time. One morning at a time, one evening at a time, one break at a time, one going home early at a time, one Netflix show at a time, squanders his life. And so the slugger doesn't have enough. When winter comes, it says in verse 11, and poverty will come. It will come. It's not, not a maybe. It will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. James says in James chapter 4 that our lives are like a vapor. That, that like the steam that rises up from your coffee cup in, a, in the morning and then quickly dissipates and blows away. That's what our lives are like in the context of humanity. You talk to anybody that's older than you. You go and talk to some of our senior saints in their 70s and their 80s. And you ask them. And the first thing that all of them will tell you is, I wish I'd have had more time with my kids. This time, I wish I would have had more time to work on my marriage. I wish that I, wouldn't have, I would have realized when I was younger. I wish I would have realized when I was 15, 25, 35, how quickly time was going to pass by. Because it passes much quicker than what you realize. You see what laziness does? Like a robber, like a thief in the night, is it steals your life away from you. It steals your life away from you. 
That if you follow after the path of most of the people that you work with and most of the people that you see and all of the Kardashian uh, TV drama that is on, there on the earth that tells you that you ought to be living in these voluptuous lifestyles and these opulent mansions, you're going to waste your life on fantasy. But if you will forsake the tyranny of convenience to live a life of dignity offered unto the Lord, you underestimate what you, you overestimate what you can do in one year, but you underestimate what God can do through you through 10 years of faithful service, through 20 years, through 50 years, over the time of what the impact that you can make on people in your family, on the people in your community, on the people in your church. I thought about, as I was writing this, I thought about the angel ladies that work across the road over there every Monday. You know nobody actually tells them they have to come? Did you know that? They come and they go to a sweatshop every Monday to sew and to work and to, to uh, create things for their community and for people at the hospital and for widows and shut-ins, the very people that everybody else has forgotten about. They go not because they have to go, not because they have to punch a time clock, not because it's, it's their, uh, they've been commanded to go. They go because they have the opportunity to go. They go because it's their joy to go. They go because they have dignity and they are living lives that are offered up to the Lord. They were tired from the jobs that they had so that they could ultimately do the job that they wanted. That's a picture of wisdom. That's what it looks like to live the wisdom of the ant. To live a life that other people might think is crazy because God says it's good. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 